And this morning, I will be preaching from First Kings, chapter 19, and we will be focusing on verses 9 through 18. So in this passage, we find the prophet Elijah in a small cave on Mount Horeb. But how did he end up in a cave on Mount Horeb? He came all the way from Mount Carmel. And if you are familiar with the story, he defeated 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He caught fire from heaven to burn the sacrifices. And then he caught rain from heaven to water the earth. He had done great things for God on the top of Mount Carmel. But then he was threatened by the evil queen Jezebel. Jezebel threatened to kill him by the next morning. And then he was afraid, the great prophet was afraid, and he ran for his life. He ran all the way through the wilderness to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is the context of this passage we should keep in our minds. Now let us hear God's word, which is good, which is life-giving, which is holy, which is infallible. First Kings 19, verses 9 through 18. Then he, referring to Elijah, then Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your orders, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And, be and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your orders, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, 
you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be, to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now let us pray and ask him for God's blessing upon his word. Oh God, our Father, our very great God and our very loving Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And as the psalm we just sang, and as the passage we just read, though the whole nation may have strayed from your commandments, though princes and queens may rise against us, let our hearts not be discouraged, but set our hearts to live and keep your word. Set our hearts to, to love and take delight in your word. May you use the preaching from a small voice to glorify yourself, to manifest your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1792, a previous shoemaker, a recently ordained pastor, a 30-year-old young man, wedding carry, preached a famous sermon at the inaugural meeting of the Baptist Missionary Society. In his sermon, he made this famous statement, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So within a year, Kerry left England with his family to pioneer a mission in India. And by the end of his 41 years of uninterrupted service in that nation, Kerry witnessed over 700 conversions. He translated the Bible into six major languages of the natives there, founded a college. He reformed the whole culture and society, the whole culture and the, the society of that nation. And he became known as the father a modern history, a modern missions. So Perry expected great things from God. He attempted great things for God. And it seemed that he had obtained and achieved great things from God. This is how the story of William Carey is often told. But this version of the story fails to captured the early years of his time in India. The first seven years were miserable, were extremely difficult. First, his only teammates deserted him, left him. And then he used up all the funds he had raised, and he had nothing to provide for his family. And then he contracted malaria and was near to death. 
then his five-year-old son died of dysentery and was buried with his own hands. And then his wife suffered a mental breakdown and had to be confined to a room for the rest of her life. And above all, there was no conversion. Not a single person came to faith in Jesus as a result of his hard and difficult labor. Nothing great happened. Nothing great had been achieved. And Kerry had to adjust his expectation. He had to persevere in the day of small things. And in today's text, we see Elijah, a prophet who shared wedding Carrie's great passions. For Elijah expected great things from God. Remember his prayer? He prayed fervently that there should be neither dew nor rain in Israel until he should pray again for it. And Elijah attempted great things for God. He defeated 450 prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. And he demonstrated that the Lord is God. Elijah had a great zeal. Elijah was very zealous for God's glory. Even when he was left alone with the only one, the only servant of God. However, Elijah suffered a deadly blow when he just came down from Mount Carmel. Right after he had achieved a spectacular victory for God. He probably was expecting a, a triumphant reception. He probably was anticipating a national revival. But instead he was received by the death rat from Queen Jezebel. And he was afraid. He took to his heels and ran for his life. He ran to the wilderness. And he was so depressed that he asked God to take away his life. He said, it's enough. Let me die. For I am no better than my father's. But this time God didn't answer his prayer. This time God didn't fulfill his wish. Instead, God sent an angel to sustain Elijah for 40 days and 40 nights and led him to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. It was God going to do with Elijah on Mount Horeb. God visited Elijah at a time when he had lost sight of God's greatness, at a time when he, when seeing that Jezebel was great, but God was small. And so God visited Elijah to reveal his greatness in a most unexpected way. He revealed his greatness in two small things. First, in a small voice, and then in a small remnant. So let us start with the first way in which God revealed his greatness. A small voice. And let's start by asking a few questions about this small voice. First, how did this small voice come to Elijah? How did this small voice come to Elijah? 
cave, and he was hiding in a cave. When he was alone and isolated, when he was exhausted and depressed. So it didn't come when the great prophet was confronting and conquering the false prophets at Mount Carmel, but came to him when he was defeated and beaten. And he was reduced to a miserable, lonely man in a cave on Mount Horeb. This still small voice, this small voice didn't come to Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel, but it came to him in the cave of Mount Horeb. And this is the first piece of information we should keep in mind. Moreover, the voice of God didn't come to Elijah when he was showing a great faith in God, when he was having a close communion with God. But instead, it came when he was suffering a faith crisis, when he was going through a spiritual breakdown. Notice the conversation between God and Elijah in verses 9 and 10. It's a compassionate father who was, who was concerned with his child. God approached him and asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And his answer was, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the children, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your orders, have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And now they seek to take my life. Can you feel and sense Elijah's emotion in his answer? He was disappointed. He was frustrated. He was angry with his people. For they had forsaken God's covenant. And he was angry with God. For God didn't intervene to protect his life. But above all, he was angry with himself. For he turned out to be a coward, a loser, who ran away from God's enemies. He failed to achieve great things for God. And he realized that he was no better than his fathers. He was no better than the people of Israel. Well, brothers and sisters, what is the condition of your faith right now? What is your relationship with God at this moment? This may be there was a time when you had been very zealous for the Lord. But now your zeal may grow cold. Your fire may go down. And you become disappointed in people, in God, and in yourself. Maybe there was a time when you felt that you were soaring with wings of faith in the sky among Carmel. But now you feel like you are walking through the valley of humiliation. You are hiding in the cave of despair. And you are ready to give up, to jump out. And remember Elijah. Remember how the voice of God came to him when he was hiding in a cave, when he was disappointed in God when he almost lost hope of life. 
servants of God, to wait for your Lord to come to you. He doesn't need to come to you when you have a great faith, but He will come to you when you have a little faith. He will come to you to refresh your soul and renew your strength. So expect God to reveal Himself even at a moment when you have little faith and little strength. For he shall not break a bruised reed, a bruised reed and the smoking flax will not quench. So this small voice of God came to Elijah when he was in a cave, when he was in a crisis. But even more significantly, this voice of God came after the most terrifying and a powerful phenomenon. First, there was a great and strong wind carrying the mountains, breaking in pieces the rocks. And then there was an earthquake causing the earth to melt like wax and the mountains to skip like rams. And then there was a fire, a consuming fire, and the mountains was wrapped in smoke and the air filled with the scent of brimstone. But the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. But these terrible phenomena were merely the backdrops of the Lord's appearance. And it's in what came after the fire that God revealed himself to Elijah. He revealed himself to Elijah in the sound of a low whisper, as ESB renders, or the sound of a gentle blowing, as NASB reads, or a still, small voice, according to the well-known translation from the King James Version. A still, small voice, and what is this small voice like? The Hebrew verse, the Hebrew phrase for this, for this expression is composed of three words, two nouns and one adjective. And the two nouns are two opposite words, ko and damama. And ko means voice, and damama means silence. So you see, this is a strange combination. You may say this is, there's a contradiction in terms in this phrase. It's a voice and silence. And the adjective to modify this, this strange combination means thing or slender. So the whole phrase can be literally translated as a thing, voice, slash, silence. But the volume of this sound is so low that the distinction is so subtle that you cannot even tell whether it's a voice or silence. It's a voice that is infinitely thin, and this silence is somehow audible. So actually, I'm eager to, to hear from Mr. Pinkson how he would translate this phrase into the language that he's been working with. 
and Charles Spurgeon captures the force of this phrase when he preaches these words. He said, Now the thunder ceased, the lightning was gone, the earth was still, the wind was hushed, and there was a dead calm, and out of the mist of the still air there came a voice of gentle silence, as if silence had become audible. It's nothing more terrible than the awful stillness after a dreadful uproar. So this still small voice came after the dreadful uproar. And why does God choose to reveal himself in this still small voice? Because he is showing Elijah that his greatness doesn't depend on the greatness of outward means. It doesn't depend on the greatness of superficial circumstances. Yes, he can certainly use the wind, the earthquake, the fire to manifest his greatness. As he did in the past in Egypt, in the wilderness, and on Mount Carmel. And in Psalm 104, as we just read, he can send the wind as his messengers, the fire as his ministers. And also we witnessed this in the most recent tragic earthquake in Turkey and Syria. So God can use these signs, these terrifying phenomena to demonstrate his greatness, his power. But God also can use even the most inconspicuous sign, the most insignificant means, the most unspectacular way, even a still small voice to demonstrate his greatness. A still small voice, it's a voice that is almost as nothing as silence, yet God can use this to demonstrate his greatness. And shall we not say, this is even a greater greatness. It's a greatness that is independent of outward means, of any human invention. It's a greatness that enters from God himself. So there's actually nothing mystical about this voice. There's nothing special about this voice. But it's the greatness of God that is the focus of this text that is the center of this encounter between God and Elijah. And that's why God uses this still, small voice to reveal himself to Elijah. And that's the lesson that God is teaching Elijah, that his greatness can be revealed even in a small voice, even in small things, and even in a little baby who is wrapped in a manger, and even in a suffering servant who was nailed on the cross. The world wouldn't recognize God's greatness in these small things. That's why Paul says Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Oh, but people of God, to those who are called, Christ crucified, the power of God, and 
the wisdom of God. Because God is delighted to reveal His greatness. God is delighted to reveal Himself. He thinks that the world wouldn't expect to see Him in these things. So brothers and sisters, we are living in a world of turmoil, of noise. The nations are raging, our enemies are roaring, and we are tempted to believe that at the loud voices that are uttered in the Supreme Court, or in the White House, or in the, or in the Capitol Hill, that we must pay attention to. But this text tells us that God is not in the wind. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the fire. But God is in the still, small voice. So I want to ask you, are you paying attention to God's voice, no matter how small it can be? Am I talking about the supernatural or mystical voice that some false teachers or delusioned believers claim to hear from God? No. But I'm speaking of the voice from the pulpit. I'm speaking of the preaching of the gospel. It doesn't matter who's preaching. It doesn't matter how many people are listening. But as long as the preacher faithfully preaches the Bible, as long as the preacher faithfully uncovers to you the message of God, this is the word of God, and this is the voice from heaven, and this is the voice that will restore your faith, this is the voice that will comfort your heart, direct your steps, and transform your life. And this is the voice that you must pay attention to. And in this voice, there is power of God for salvation for everyone who hears and believes. And I also want to say to you, my dear unbelieving friends, what are you expecting from God to convert you? What do you expect that your conversion experience should be like? Are you expecting a great miracle? Or are you waiting for an irresistible impulse? Or are you expecting a dramatic change of your life circumstance? But I tell you, you don't need the wind, the earthquake, the fire to bring you to God. But today, if you hear the preaching of God's word, even a small weak voice from a small unimpressive preacher, you must come out of your cave and you must stand before God. You must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. For he who knew no sin became sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And he who was the author of life died on the cross for you so that in him you might have eternal life through him. So my dear friend, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not hide from God. But come to Jesus 
turn to Jesus, and you will be saved. So when Elijah was in the cave, when he was in despair, when he heard the still small voice that came after the wind and earthquake and fire, he did respond. How did he respond? At first sight, he seemed greatly moved by this voice. He recognized God's presence in this still small voice, and he came out of his cave with his face wrapped in his cloak. And this reminds us of the angels in Isaiah chapter 6 who covered their faces, their feet with their wings as they stood in the presence of God. And this also reminds, of us, reminds us of Moses in Exodus 33 when he was put in a cleft of the rock and covered by the hand of God and the Lord was passing before him. It seemed that Elijah had learned his lesson. He recognized God's glory, God's greatness, and the small, still voice he just heard. But when God asked him the same question, What are you doing here, Elijah? We hear the same answer. The answer he gave in verse 14 was the same one that he had previously given in verse 10. The same complaints, the same frustration, the same disappointment. But still, Elijah didn't get it. Still, he needed to learn the same lesson again. And so, as a patient teacher, God spoke to him again in verses 5 through 18. The voice of God came to him again. And this time, God commissioned him to anoint three persons. First, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And then Jehu to be king over Israel. And then Elijah to be prophets in his place. And it's important for us to notice that God is not switching gears here. God is not changing the topic. The same run of Q&A shows us that God is impressing the same message on Elijah. God is repeating the same lesson to Elijah. And look at verse 17. It says, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. So here you see a pattern of sequence, an arrangement of succession. And this should remind us of a similar setting in the preceding verses. After the wind comes, the earthquake, and after the earthquake came the fire. So here we see a parallelism, a parallelism between the wind, the earthquake, the fire in verse 11, and Hazel, Jehu, and Elijah in verse 17. And we may even go as far as to compare Hazel to the wind, and Jehu to the earthquake, and Elijah to the fire. 
But if you know what they would be doing, then you would see the close similarity between these people and those natural phenomena. For Hazael was indeed like, would be like a strong wind who shall sweep across the nation of Israel, striking down their young men and dash their babies in pieces. And Jehu was very much like an earthquake which shall overthrow the house of Ahab and demolish the altars of Baal. And Elisha would be almost like the purifying fire which shall purge Israel of their idolatry. But the point is that Hazael is not the center of God's plan, nor is Jehu, nor is Elisha. You may think Elisha must be the central instrument that God will use to manifest his greatness, but actually not. These men are just the background set up for the true subject, the real focus. And the real focus is revealed in verse 18, which came after Hazel, after Jehu, after Elisha, and which we too often neglect. God says in verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So these 7,000 in Israel, a small remnant indeed, as Paul points out in Romans, is the actual focus of God's plan of redemption, is the very means which God chooses to reveal his greatness. So just as God revealed his greatness in a still, small voice, so now God reveals his greatness in a hidden, small remnant. Again, God is teaching Elijah the same lesson. He's telling Elijah to recognize his greatness in small things. So brothers and sisters, one more we feel that we are becoming a small remnant in this country. The majority is turning away from God. And the church is declining decade by decade, generation by generation. And we pray for national repentance. We pray for a great revival. But what if we do not see a revival in our days? What if we do not see the nation turn back to God in our life? Shall we be frustrated? Shall we be disappointed? Let's learn from this passage. Let's learn from Elijah's experience. And let's remember that God's greatness doesn't depend on numbers or sizes. Let's recognize God's Greatness revealed in small things, whether it be a small voice, whether it be a little remnant. Yes, maybe we are living in a day of small things, but we don't need to be discouraged. 
because we believe in a great God, a great God that is even able to reveal His greatness in small things. And we know that God is using this day, God is using these small things to prepare us for the great day of the Lord, the glorious day of the return of Jesus Christ. And on that day, God will no longer reveal himself in a small voice. But there will be a loud cry of command. There will be the thundering voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And on that day, there will, we will no longer be a small remnant. But there will be a great multitude coming from every tribe and people and language and tongue. And we shall worship our God forever and ever before his heavenly throne. So I come from China, but I became a Christian here in the United States. You would hear more from me about my testimony. But I am so excited about the great works that God is doing in China. I'm so amazed at the rapid growth of the churches in my home country. But do you know how it started? Yes, this nation is greatly indebted to the missionaries who laid it in China for the last two centuries. And we are honored to have such great men as Hudson Taylor and Eric Little, the giants of faith in the history of missions. After the golden years of mission work in China, came World War II, when the Japanese invaded China. And after World War II, the Civil War, and the Communist Party came to power. And then persecution started. Missionaries were deported, pastors were imprisoned, and congregations were closed. But how did the seed of faith survive the whirlwinds, the earthquake, and the fire? How were this siege of truth preserved for this joyful day of great harvest? It was preserved by those illiterate and uneducated women who lived in poor villages because they were so insignificant that the government didn't bother to put them into prison. And because they were so stubborn that their husbands couldn't force them to abandon their faith. These women, they couldn't read the Bible, but they preached in villages and in rural areas. They preached to their children and their neighbors they proclaimed the crudest version of the gospel that they learned by heart and lived in their life. And the people believed them, and they followed Jesus. And this is how you see the church of China is growing so rapidly. So it's in this way, by this small remnant who spoke in a small voice, that God has manifested his greatness, that God has 
advanced his kingdom. Their God has established his church, which the wind shall not break, the earthquake shall not destroy, and the fire shall not consume. Indeed, we may say, even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So brothers and sisters, do not despise the small things as God has used to reveal his greatness. So you will see God's greatness even in these small things despised in the world. And you have all the confidence to believe that God will bring out great things through these small things to surprise the world and to comfort and confirm our hearts. So let us pray. Our great and awesome God, we do feel like we are living a day of small things. But we ask you to make us see your greatness revealed in these small things. And we ask you to make us faithful in small things. To keep us untainted by this world. That our knees will never bow to Baal. That our mouth will never kiss Jezebel. And Lord, though we live in a day of small things, we do expect great things from you. And we do attempt great things for you, and we look forward to the great day when every knee shall bow before you, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of you, our Father. O oh Lord Jesus, we, we wait for you. O oh come, Lord Jesus. Before, but before we, you come, help us labor fervently and faithfully. Help us to do those small things and find great pressure in what we are doing. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.